0: Yes, hey, welcome back to the Samurai Archives
1: Podcast. This is Chris here with Major Nate Ledbetter. Hey, how you doing? And uh, just a reminder, you can get all of our old episodes on the Samurai Podcast blog, SamuraiPodcast.com. And with that out of the way, we will get started. So uh, today, Nate and I here are talking about a conference that he recently attended, an archaeology conference.
0: Uh, well, I it was the, uh, the Fields of Conflict Conference, 2014. Uh, obviously, that's the year. Uh, which was uh, held in uh, Columbia South Carolina uh, sponsored by the uh, Archaeology department or uh, I'm sorry anthropology department at uh, uh, University of South Carolina from the uh, March 12th through 15th so uh, we're recording this a little bit after the fact but yeah so was there um, actually <laughs> it, it's it's interesting how I, I kind of got into that because I wasn't originally going to that conference, but uh, I was, spo- I was in- originally invited to a conference that was supposed to take place in uh, Palo Alto, Texas, uh, down near Brownsville uh, at the Palo Alto uh, National Battlefield Memorial uh, sponsored by them uh, that was going to focus on, uh, you know, battlefield archaeology, uh, was invited to go speak at that. Oh, that's then, right. There was a
1: government shutdown.
0: Yes. That, because it was on a, you know, national park site, uh, it was a victim of the government shutdown. Cause that was going to, that it was going to take place in October, uh, like the second week of October. And at that point, the government had decided that, uh, you know, con- Congress, and never mind, I, I won't go any further than that since we already know I'm affiliated with the military, and so I should not make political statements. But the bottom line is the conference was a victim of the, uh, the shutdown, and so they postponed it. Or, well, rather, uh, they didn't know what they were going to do. So uh, it turned out that every two years they hold – uh, a large, uh, con- they, it's now called conflict archaeology. It used to be called battlefield archaeology, from what I understand. Um, but the, you know, it's archaeology focused on the study of historical warfare. Uh, and it just so happened that this conference was going on in South Carolina uh, this, you know, this March. So, one of the organizers or a couple of the organizers from our conference in Texas are were also organizers of this conference in South Carolina and so uh it ended up working out I'm not quite sure you know who you know how, how all the ins and outs of it but that's not really important but the conference uh our conference from uh, Palo Alto got rolled up into the Fields of Conflict conference uh and I'm really glad it did because Rather than just being a one-day kind of thing with just our our little group, you know, talking, I got to actually spend four days uh, at a conference, meeting people, listening to pa- different uh, papers, seeing a whole bunch of different ways of not only um, you know how archaeology can be used to study uh, warfare in history, but also the different ways that you can do archeology span and the different cool things that you can do with it. And, uh, it was just, it was just really cool. Uh, it was something that I completely have no experience with. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed, uh, all the presentations I got to see. I really enjoyed talking, uh, with lots of, uh, different folks from, uh, you know, all over the world. And it was really cool. And I'm going to include a, a shout out here from to uh, Dr. Peter Bleed and Dr. Doug Scott from the University of Nebraska, who were the ones who invited me to the original conference, uh, and also were involved in the planning of the Fields of Conflict conference, and so therefore uh, got me involved with that. It was a, a we, we you know these are there are two um, conflict archaeologists from uh, the University of Nebraska who I've been interacting with for, uh, gosh, almost two years now uh, via email uh, about uh, different, uh, you know, methodologies for studying uh, historical battlefields. And, you know, they had uh, they had gotten a hold of uh, my Nagashino presentation that, you know, from way back when, like the original one uh, that I had uh, done at the first conference. Uh, we went to there in Honolulu and had put up on YouTube.
1: Yeah, way back, uh, way back in the day.
0: Yeah, way back in the day, back when it all started.
1: <laughs> what, was that 2011? Uh, Has it been that long? Uh, was that it was January
0: 2012.
1: Oh, okay, that sounds about right.
0: So yeah, just a little too, over two years ago. Um, but they had they had uh, uh, invited or they had you know contacted me about that and we we've talked back and forth about a lot of things and i should mention that uh uh dr peter bleed is a self professed uh fan of the podcast uh so uh, we've got at
1: least one fan
0: hello dr bleed <laughs> and i uh, hope you're listening and uh, i i hope i i do the conference a little bit of credit here on the uh, the podcast
1: yeah i wanted to say uh i i've been to a few you know, Japanese history or history conferences, a few Asian studies conferences, and and a psychology conference, but never an archaeology conference. And I was looking over the uh, itinerary and the the listing or the description of the different uh, looking at the different panels, and uh, the, I was the I was presentations, yeah. The, yeah the presentations. I, I was fascinated. Uh, you know, I usually when we go to these uh, sort of general history or general studies Asian studies conferences. I only really have an interest in maybe ten or fifteen percent of what's there, and then the rest I just kind of randomly go to just out of curiosity. But reading the descriptions, uh, I would every single one of them looked really interesting. Yeah. Probably because I don't really have much of a background in it. But I mean, you know, that that being said, it looked really interesting. But you know, also I, I guess it should be mentioned too that yeah, neither of us really have anything have any real experience in archaeology. And I think, like most people, at least from my my sort of background and my perspective, I, I really didn't know much about archaeology. I only re- very recently started reading. A few archaeo- archaeology articles and journal articles, uh, sort sort of things. Some that, some things that uh, Joseph, our previous podcast host, had kind of uh, pointed me in the direction of, and my right. my uh, view as as is probably like a really outdated and and probably poor view, where it seems like it's it's a lot of digging stuff up and dating it, and and I really didn't understand what archaeologists did. And when I was looking at a lot of the descriptions for this conference. You see a, a lot of uh, things like uh, using LIDAR mapping and, uh, you know, metal detectors, you know, strategies for metal detectors on battlefield archaeology and uh, military train analysis and uh, digitized historical maps and aerial photos and satellite imagery. And, and just a, just like way more techno- technical and technological than I ever really imagined archaeology was. So my bad. I, didn't, I really didn't know anything about it. And it looked really fascinating.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, if, if – If if all people know of archaeology is Indiana Indiana Jones, Jones. yeah. (laughs) Then, uh, um, I mean, that's, you know, certainly finding old temples is a, uh, is a valid form of archaeology. But, uh, yeah, one one of the, the, the interesting things is, I mean, of course, I, I didn't really know a whole lot about it either going into this. So, uh, it was interesting for me to, to, to be there and and see all of it. And of course, you know, I think of archaeology and, and, um, I mean, like you said, you you know, you think of digging things up, finding things uh, in in the ground. But um, one of the one of the interesting intersections of what I've done with with my research and the the archaeology, the conflict archaeology folks, is um, you you have to figure out where to dig. And I think that's kind of the you know, if I were to put it in a nutshell. Why I was invited and why everybody seemed to really like my uh, approach to how to study a battle. I mean, of course, you know we're not going to rehash Nagashino here because we've done that um, way too much. But uh, we, but uh, you know, that's that's what I that's the case study that I used when I uh, did my presentation. My presentation was on uh, was on on that, but it was more highlighting the how I go about you know, went about it um, and how like my methodology and and, and so forth and applying uh, some of my military background and military concepts in trying to figure out what happened. And that's important. I now, you know, I realize to an archaeologist because, you know, digging up places takes time and money and uh, anything that they can do to help them refine where to look for things is valuable to them. So like, you know, you, we were talking a little bit before we started recording and you, you noted, um, so, you know, many of them talk about uh, different terrain analysis, uh, techniques and, and, and so forth. I mean, that's because you want to understand the terrain and find the most likely places where you're going to find things. So kind of what I do is I take that terrain analysis three or four steps further, uh, by then applying the, the military aspects of it and, um, of not only the terrain, but you know, what, what kind of force are we looking at? What kind, how would it have been employed on the battlefield? And therefore, where would it have been employed on the battlefield? So, uh, you know, you can further refine, okay, uh, where to, where to look, Uh, And then, you know, if you go dig there, it it, basically it sets it up for an archaeologist to know, okay, if I if I believe this uh, is how the battle went, then I should be able to find things at this location. And by going to that location, if they find something, then that confirms it. If they, you know, they don't, then it kind of says, okay, you got to go back to the drawing board. But at least it gives that refined picture for them to start with.
1: Yeah, and you know, another thing too, which we we will probably get into more in your specific case, but as someone who has no background in archaeology, and, and you know, even even also lacking the sort of advanced background in uh, academia, I have to wonder where where does archaeology and history intersect? Where at what point do the historians decide to look at the at the archaeology, and at what point do the archaeologists look at the the literary sources, and, and how does how, how does that interaction actually take place, and what what do they get from each other? And then I, I guess you could we could even move beyond that and say, in your specific case, what did the archaeologists see, and what you were doing that they right. could gain from it. So I guess you know just generally and specifically. Well, I, I mean, yeah,
0: that's a fascinating question. And coming from the outside, like I do, you know, you would think that as a historian, you're looking for anything that you can find that uh, will help you get to the to the ground truth or, you know, I mean, as best you can, right, Uh, of of whatever subject it is you're looking at. And of course, you know, material evidence, which is what the archaeologists deal in, is about as concrete as you can get. I mean, you know, we've talked about uh, on on the podcast before the problems with uh, textual sources, you know, written in the 1600s or or whatever time period you're looking at, you know, because not only are, 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 are things you know from then. I mean, may, they may be writing about things that happened 50 years earlier or whatever. Uh, they're writing with different viewpoints. They're writing, you know, everybody has a slant, right? So you know, it's it's no different than Reading an op-ed piece in the New York Times written by uh, a uh, an ultra conservative or an ultra liberal, uh, if if you know, 500 years from now somebody reads that and you know takes that as as the the truth, the way things are, rather than understanding that you know the author of that newspaper our, uh, editorial is writing from a particular viewpoint and trying to sell. A particular viewpoint then they're gonna have problems and we have to read sources the same way and you know again we've we've talked about that a lot on on the podcast before so you would think that as a historian you're you're looking for something to supplement written sources
1: well not to interrupt but you know when I think about it from kind of from the outside when I'm looking in I feel like on the side of historians they're kind of you know there's the the great man theory they're looking at the movers and the shakers of history this guy right. did this this he moved history the archaeologists are finding general things little things right. pieces they're not they're not finding i again this is totally from a totally outside of archaeology point of view my impression would be that what could historians who are studying the the large sweeping events of history get from archaeology if if you follow my
0: yeah i I would be careful about that because you know that that whole well one great man theory has like well yeah not <laughs> been you know in vogue in academia since maybe the like the nineteen forties. I was like actually that.
1: thinking of Sansom in that yeah in that particular case, but yeah, I mean, I mean obviously now I, well, I see now definitely yeah. uh, you have uh, like Friday and you have others. They're they're looking at sort of the smaller scale rather than just the top level things, right. but I kind of. Right. But I'm kind of curious where, where archaeology and history sort of intersect, which I, I guess is more of the same question, but I, I, I'm personally not, I'm not clearly seeing where the connection is when it comes to, I mean, ancient history is one thing because you have more archaeology than you have literary sources, but when you get to, say, right. 400 years ago, there are more, I, I feel like there, there's more higher level literary sources. So what would a historian, a historian actually gain from the archaeology? If, if you have well, an answer, what you,
0: what you, what you gain is a check on those sources. I mean, like I just said, you know, like we just talked about, you know, sources aren't, aren't ground truth. They can't be our written sources are, are you know, they're all flawed. Um, and you know, the best you can do when you're looking at a bunch of textual sources is compare them, uh, understand their author's viewpoints and kind of interpret it. Uh, So, you know, like, uh, I I mean, we've talked ad nauseum here on the podcast about the Koyo Gunkan or or something like that, Uh, and, uh, you know, that it's a a particularly slanted viewpoint and and so negative about uh, Takeda Katsuyori because it was written by um, or at least attributed to someone who, you know, he didn't get along with and uh, for various reasons, blah, 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 blah. So you you kind of read that as you're reading the Koyo gunkan and go well okay when he's talking about how Katsuyori is a uh, you know a big dummy head for uh, <laughs> attacking at Nagashina well maybe we take that with a large piece of rock salt um, instead of a grain of salt uh, and, and so forth what what the textual or what archaeology can do for you um, I I mean, again, not being an archaeologist, I can't speak for every case, or I can't. It's hard for me to speak generally, but from what I was able to see, you know, through the conference, and then think about applying to my own stuff. Uh, for instance, if we were to go to Nagashino and look, you know, dig up the battlefield, so to speak, and we found uh, trace elements of the. The, the barricades that uh, nobunaga's army set up uh the positioning of where we found those versus where we didn't find them could help us determine you know where troops were positioned on the battlefield and how the barricades were used which then helps us understand um you know what was nobunaga's plan and so for me I could look at that, you know, if, if if I were able to go to Nagashino and you know dig to my heart's content uh, with a big team and 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 determine that sort of thing, then I could either confirm or deny my thesis about how how Nobunaga set up his his defensive plan. Um, in the case of you know Katsuyori, we could we could try to identify. Uh, positions that the, the Takeda had uh, occupied and kind of understand what their positioning was and therefore kind of, uh, use that to interpret what their plan was and, and again, confirm or deny, uh, whether, you know, different theories about how the Takeda operated at, at, at Nagashino were, you know, tr- whether they're true or false. Um, so that's, that's kind of how the connection should
1: work. Yeah, and actually, I, I agree though that too that that's that's without doing that type of thing, you're actually you're you're sort of lacking as far as re- research goes in a way because oh absolutely yeah, but then also on the other hand too, it, is that something that's currently being done on the Japanese history Japanese study side? Is there that interaction with archaeology, or is it still more or less literary sources? My impression is that it's right. more literary sources, and there really isn't that much cross disciplinary, you know pollination if you want to call it that
0: um I or not as much as there's maybe there's not as prob- much as there
1: should be i, I, I don't yeah this point
0: yeah there's 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 probably more than we're aware of um recently there's been a, a fairly large archaeology boom in japan um and joseph would really be the right person to talk about this but you know i there there's been a lot of like Obviously, if you're looking at like the Kofun period and before, then it makes sense because you're lacking in the the textual sources. So, boom, what do you have? Well, you got to go dig stuff up. Exactly. But there's actually been quite a bit of excavation of uh, in recent, in very recent years of uh, Sengoku period, like castles and so forth that are no longer, you know, they're, they're castle ruins or they're where? a castle was but it had been you know kind of uh, leveled and then um uh and then got you know kind of grown over and and so forth um if i say i don't have anything in front of me but if i remember correctly i know odani joe has been excavated um i know that there's been some work done at azuchi i don't think they've excavated the whole thing but they have done some work at azuchi to to try to uh, determine the scale of it and and so forth um i know that i want to say one of the uh, locations up in echizen uh associated with uh shibata katsue i think has been uh looked at uh and uh investigated um again to what extent i couldn't tell you but i know that there are things being done so but my impression, at least from what I've read, is that it's focusing on things like castle sites, uh, not which would fall in the realm of conflict archaeology because of their defensive positions. But they, you know, it's not. I I'm not aware of any archaeological research being done specifically at uh, battlefield sites. Like Nagashino or Sekigahara or, or wherever, and um, so. <laughs> I guess
1: they don't want Actually, to tear up the soccer field that's that's now sitting on the on the places apparently.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, it, I, I suppose, I, or or you know, perhaps people just haven't thought to do it. I, I don't know. It was interesting. One of the the people I met at the conference uh, was, oh, gosh, I, I want to get the. The titles right here, but was with the National Park Service and was in charge, or or, or was a, a main main person in their battlefield protection program. Uh, because a lot of the folks here, you know, or at the conference, did uh, you know United States battlefields, whether they were Civil War, Revolutionary War, or uh, you know maybe Indian Wars, whatever it was. Um, and so there's a there's a very big At least my perception was that it was big. It was a very active attempt to identify and then preserve uh, battle sites from from various conflicts that took place here in the United States. And so I I was talking with uh, this 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 very interesting woman, and she was very interested in you know what I was doing um, or what the possibilities were for doing things in Japan. Now. Of course, the U.S. National Park Service can't do anything to help me uh, directly in Japan. They're not going to provide me funding to go dig up a Japanese battlefield. <laughs> uh, but uh, they, you know, she was very uh, helpful and very, uh, uh, you know, w- wanted to, you know, we're, uh, we, we've emailed back and forth a couple times since the conference uh, because she wanted to provide me with information, as much information as I could. Uh, so that, you know, in the future, if I were to ever be in the position to do something in Japan, like they have resources on how to talk to the local population you know, of the, the town that you're, you want to do archaeological research in, in order to, uh, A, explain what you're doing, B, kind of get them on your side and allow you to, to do it. You know, there, there are ways where instead of saying, Hey, farmer Bob, I'm going to dig up your field, move your cows. It's, Hey, you know, we're, we're doing this because we want to preserve the history of this place that you're, you know, of of where you live and, you know, different things like, like approaching schools and having, you know, it, it becoming, uh, an educational thing for them to participate in and, and and help with, which is, (laughs) Which is interesting for me, uh, looking at Nagashino, since part of the Danjo Yama ridgeline, the southern part of the Danjo Yama ridgeline, where Tokugawa Ieyasu had his headquarters, has been cut off and leveled, and a school was built on top of it. Mm, Right. So it would be the perfect thing to have a bunch of uh, you know junior high kids out there or whatever, uh, helping dig us dig stuff up because it's their battlefield. So I mean I don't know. Obviously I'm probably a decade at least away from being able to, to do anything like that. But it was interesting to kind of get that a talk to people who listened to me speak and were excited about the possibilities of, uh, of doing something in Japan and, and B had the knowledge and resources to say, Hey, this is how you go do it. Um, so it was, it, it was pretty cool from that aspect.
1: Mm, definitely. So you said that uh, Dr. Bleed and Dr. Scott were the ones that invited you to the uh, conference. Uh, so now actually having gone there, um, actually what I'm curious about is uh, what exactly did they feel that they, as archaeologists, could gain from your research? What, what, what in particular is it that you're doing that maybe other historians aren't? Or, or is there something specific to what you're doing that really resonated with them?
0: Right. Well, they both uh, have an interest in... Finding ways to use military concepts in order to inform archaeological research. Uh, so specifically, starting with, and it was it was really interesting because a lot of the uh, the presentations it, it uh, used this concept. Um, they called it cocoa. Uh, I am familiar with it as a coca. Cause that's how I learned it way back in the dark ages when I was a young second lieutenant. But basically it, I mean, it's the same thing, just the letters rearranged in the acronym and I'll get to the acronym in a second, but it, it's a, it's the, the basic form of military analysis uh, or military terrain analysis. Uh, the letters stand for uh, key terrain observation and fields of fire uh, cover and concealment, obstacles, and uh, avenues of approach. Yeah. So, um, you know, the different, these are, these are the, the, the five things that, as a military officer, uh, you know, military thinker, as you're looking at the terrain, you, you analyze it in those terms in order to uh, understand it and be able to, uh, you know, figure out how to maneuver your forces you know, take advantage of it to defeat the enemy
1: kind of right, thing. Right,
0: right. Well, it, it's important to understand that as a archaeologist who's looking for physical evidence on the terrain, uh, because, you know, if, uh, if if you don't know kind of what the key terrain is or where, where, the, where the, uh, the avenues of approach were, then you're not going to understand how the army that you're studying moved on the battlefield, so you won't know where to go look at you know that's that's one thing that I use, and and like I said, a lot. It, I was really impressed with how many people uh, went into cocoa, uh, we'll we'll call it because that's what they called it, as a fundamental part of, of their um, their presentations. And there were actually some very innovative ways of using it, which I was very uh, very impressed with. But what I do is that's just one part of what I what I do because um, I. Look at you know I look at that and that but then I, I mesh it with the other things that we look at, at typically as a uh, you know as a as a military commander uh, analyzing not only the terrain but everything um, around it because um, and we, we actually got you know Doctor Doctor Bleed presented a paper on, on battle space which is a kind of an extension of this concept uh, because it's not just the physical terrain but it's everything um, that a, a military thinker is looking at within the area that can affect what his, uh, you know, his, his unit or his, uh, his, his command. And, and he gave a a a paper and and talked about that. And, uh, at the end, we, you know, of course there were some, some questions and, and and whatever. And, and I, I, somebody had asked a question, um, I'm trying to remember they are uh, you know, for some people it was kind of like a new concept and cocoa was, was, was new. And so there was a question about it and I, and I answered it or I, you know, I came in with a comment and um, uh, the, the thing that I, th- that, that seems inherently obvious to me that, but that I, I felt I kind of needed to stress because they're not coming necessarily coming from it, from a military thinking background is that terrain analysis and, and whatever Using these five factors is great, but ultimately there's got to be a so what to it. And that so what for a military uh, thinker is, you know, how do I use it to beat the enemy? Right, right. You know, you can say, oh, the key terrain is this hill right here, but what makes it key terrain? It's the ability, you know, it's that if I control that. I have an advantage over the, you know, a distinct advantage over the enemy. If the enemy controls it, he has a distinct advantage over me, and the, you know, winning or losing could hinge on possession of that that hilltop.
1: So, are you saying basically, if you're looking at a battlefield and not think considering where the enemy would be, then it's it's really not all that valuable, is that?
0: Right. I mean, you know, the the you you can't just. Throw, you know, the five, uh, you know, this acronym out there and say, oh, well, the this is this and this is this and this is this. If it could be completely irrelevant, you know, you can look at a piece of terrain and there's, say there's rivers across it. Oh, those are obstacles. Or depending on what we're talking about, they could be avenues of, of approach. They may not be obstacles at all. Mm. Is this a uh, an army that's equipped with boats that they can use the rivers as as movement? Corridors, you know. Who knows? I mean, you have to understand what the so what is to to the to the armies that you're studying, not just look at a piece of terrain and go, "Oh, okay, well, this is what I think." Um, and not to say that people were necessarily doing that, but really, it, it's it's it goes back to, and I've talked about this this before. You know, my interest is in command decision making, command thinking. Why did a historical commander uh you know in our case a a samurai commander make the decisions that he did and what inputs did he have that led him to those to the conclusions that he that he made and so you have to understand that so what you know uh, of of what it means uh to that commander so um you know if you're looking at a concept like battle space uh where you know you're looking out beyond just the 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 immediate surroundings of the terrain to, you know, what we call the the area, which would be the area of operations. You're looking out further to the area of interest, which is where, um, you know, the range at which anything that takes place in there can affect what I do, even if it's not the battlefield per se and so forth that, you know, if it can affect what I do, then there's a, so what, if something is within that space, but it doesn't affect what I do, who cares? You know, I mean, if I'm a military commander, I don't care. That's <laughs> right. You know, and so that's that filter that when you're when you're thinking about a, uh, a commander uh, on the battlefield that you have to apply. And and so that was one of those things that, like, I, I, you know, the archaeologists, as they're kind of working through these concepts um, and, and, and applying them, there was some great stuff being applied. But the, I felt in discussion there were there was some there needs to be some refinement in how they kind of use some of these concepts to get that so what uh, because you know otherwise you could you could spend a lot of time you know doing uh, you know looking at something and be completely in left field without knowing it mm. but yeah I, I mean what what uh, so that's part of what it. Uh, was, you know, the, 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 it's, it's interesting. I mean, I go to a history conference, uh, and like, I, I almost have to minimize, uh, or, or obscure my, my military, you know, concepts that I use, uh, because it's not, it's not cool. (laughs) You know, I mean, to talk, like I, if I were to go to a uh, to a Japanese studies conference, nobody wants to hear a, a, uh, me talk about it in terms of well, this is the military, you know, the U.S. Army's way of analyzing terrain, right? Nobody wants to hear that. Um, the cool thing about this conference for me was everybody wants to hear that. Everybody wants these, you know. They they were all like I met so you know so many people, uh, you know, came up and talked to me and and, and were like oh well you know, do you think you can apply this in this situation? I was like, uh, yeah, absolutely. Why not? They're like, Oh, that's so cool. So it, it was a lot of fun from, from that aspect of it, just because it was a completely different uh, audience that many of them spoke the language that I, that I think in, right. right. And, you know, in terms of that whole military uh, way of, of, of analyzing things, um, which which I just don't get at like either an Asian studies conference, especially, or even um, like the military history conferences I, I, I go to, they're still very much focused on the history aspect of it and looking at texts and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and less uh, looking at terrain and looking at other things that you would think about. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was, uh, it was interesting. I got there and I listened to like the first, uh, two days of, uh, presentations. Uh, and I, re- I realized that, uh, Oh, Hey, okay. Uh, this audience actually, you know, s- speaks my language and, uh, they know if a-, a thing or two about this. So I actually rewrote or re, you know, adjusted my presentation. Uh, see it was, a uh, My presentation was on Friday morning, uh, but we got there on Wednesday. So I had Wednesday and Thursday of presentations before I, before I gave mine on Friday morning. So Wednesday and Thursday night, I, I, uh, I, or Thursday afternoon, I spent a lot of time readjusting my presentation to, uh, to kind of not focus so, so much on, uh, some of the, uh, you know, things that I thought people already understood, but to kind of go a couple steps further in how do you, okay, so if you're using a technique like Kakoa, uh to study terrain analysis, that's, that's great. How do you fit that into a larger context and how I do that and how the US, US army does that is through uh, you know, a, a, what we call the five paragraph operations order. It's a, it's the, the order that, you know, a, a, unit staff creates out of their analysis product, uh, process. And so then, you know, all they do, all their analysis of various things. And then the final product is this order that they then push down to, uh, the units, you know, below them, uh, in order to get them to go do whatever it is they they want to do. Well, it, it provides a very, very nice streamlined, uh, template for filling in a whole bunch of information about the battle and, and it's, co- it's meant to be comprehensive. So it covers the five paragraphs are you know, the situation, which is what's going on. Uh, you know, what, what's, what's the terrain like? What's the weather like? Uh, what's the enemy? Uh, what do we think the enemy is like? And what's our own, uh, you know, friendly forces? Uh, who's to the left of us? Who's to the right of us? What's our higher, uh, you know, headquarters telling us to do kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, the next paragraph is the mission, which is, this is what we need to do in a nutshell. And then the next paragraph is the execution paragraph, which is that mission with it. We just talked about, this is how we're going to do it. So I want you to go do this and you to go do this. And, you know, I'm, I'm oversimplifying obviously, but
1: you know, you get the idea. Is it related to the uh, MDMP, or is this something separate? Yes,
0: it is a it is the product of the military decision making process MDMP. Um, so, uh, the the process of MDMP is played out through what's called what the what the staff does of a unit is called mission analysis, and You know, that feeds into the commander's decision making process because it provides him with the information uh, that he needs to make his decisions. And then the he makes his decisions. The staff then generates this order based off of, you know, their analysis, their research uh, into the situation and so forth and the commander's decision on, okay, this is what our mission is. This is what we're going to do uh, and how I want you to do it and, and so it, it packages it all up very nicely. And it, 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 it's interesting because this is, I mean, I just think in these terms, it's, it's, it's inherent to me. I can't not think in these terms. Um, but it was interesting to see kind of, to take it, you know, you, you, you had people who were using things like Cocoa, um, or even taking it a bit for, you know, a further to, uh, look at uh, you know battle space and, and, and other other concepts. And what what my intent was in my presentation um, was to show them. I you know there's no way in 20 minutes because all I had was 20 minutes. There's no way in 20 minutes I could go over the entire op order and, and show them the value of it. But what I what I did do is I focused on a couple different things and I used you know my research in Nagashino to highlight th- the importance of those. So, primarily talked about uh, the situation and you know, kind of, kind of how I use techniques that we use, uh, you know, that I would use as, an, as a tactical intel officer to fill out that portion of uh, of the operations order um, in the mission analysis process to kind of uh, backwards uh, apply it to a historical battle and fill in a lot of the gaps that we have about Nagashino. And then, you know, also, okay, so this is the information we have. So how, how would you, uh, you know, look at the terrain, you look at the forces that you have and understanding the forces that you have, how would you then apply it on the, on the battlefield? And that kind of falls under the execution paragraph of, you know, how am I going to arrange my forces? How am I going to execute a plan in order to defeat uh, the, the enemy so those are the two that i focused on mostly um the other two paragraphs are the op order or, or two that I, I really like to get in into um and eventually when i when i get around to writing a book on nagashino i will but uh uh the 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 last two are um uh sustainment which is you know logistics it's How do I feed my army? How do I have enough bullets for my army? How do I, uh, you know, have horses for my army? That sort of thing. And then uh, the last paragraph is uh, command and signal, which is, you know, how do I communicate and how do I execute or, or, you know, how do I transmit uh, orders? Uh, So I I really think that's something that I'd like to get into uh, studying in a 16th century uh, Japanese context, you know, how did command, how did mission command is what we would call it today in the U.S. Army, but how did not just orders get transmitted like verbally or, 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 you know, by signal flag or whatever, but how, how did a, you know, how did somebody like Oda Nobunaga uh, sitting on, uh, you know, his hilltop at Chaosuyama, you know, make decisions and transmit those in the moment. Uh, I, I think would be fascinating to to try to tease out of different uh, different historical sources and and also just kind of an understanding of, of the, the technology and the the, uh, the stuff of the time. So those are those are things that I think. And, and again, you know, kind of going back into um, you know what can material history uh, or or archaeology teach us about those sorts of things, you know, finding, you know, or, or, uh, finding things like, uh, uh, you know, flag remnants or, or, you know, uh, conch shells or, uh, or something like that would be, would be telling, um, or, or even just, uh, you know, the other aspect of material history is not just finding old things, but, uh, taking them and using them.
1: <laughs> so Yeah, well you know, I think that would be especially what you just mentioned definitely would be key because yeah. you know, like you said, if you're if if the general is on the hill and the battle has started, what does he have at his disposal to affect what's going on? It's not like he has mm-hmm. radios or and uh you know satellite imagery and, and you know he is very limited in what he actually has available. So that, right. that's actually and a very if, good point. If you'll,
0: if, if our listeners will remember, um, the podcast we did about my last visit, uh, last August to, uh, to Nagashino, I mean, that was one of the things that struck me as I, as I spent a day walking around is that, you know, from certain, uh, parts on the battlefield, I mean, you can't see what's going on, uh, in other parts. And so that to me goes into that whole uh understanding of of command and signal or mission command how did nobunaga control what was going on on the battlefield if he couldn't see the southern half of it well maybe he didn't control it maybe uh you know he had to rely on his subordinates or his ally tokugawa ieyasu to control what was going on on the southern half of the battlefield while he he just managed the northern part and so that's the kind of thing, because I think in the um, you know, in, in, in those terms of okay, command and signal. Well, how did he do this? Oh, okay, well, here I am on the battlefield and I can't see this part, and you know, he wouldn't have been able to see over here. So he would have had to figure out some way to to, to make sure that things were in control over there. So how would you do it? Well, you would you would have somebody you trust over there doing it. Okay, well, who would he have trusted? Well, probably Tokugawa Ieyasu. Uh, and 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 so forth, and that's just kind of like my thought process. But um, hopefully, the listener can can kind of see what I'm talking about when I say, you know, that that's the, the like the the, the op order format and the, and the the whole methodology underlies my thinking. Uh, because if if I didn't have that, why would I even think of it?
1: Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. If you're not yeah, looking for you know, that, and it, it might it just, not even occur just to wouldn't
0: you. It would occur to me that, oh, hey, why would you know, how does he command? Um, or how does he, you know, transmit his orders on the battlefield. So yeah,
1: probably I guess in general, it would just be glossed over and say, This right. guy won or this guy lost and that's it. Right. All right, and that's it for part one of our coverage of the twenty fourteen Fields of Conflict Conference. Be back with part two in about two weeks. And in the meantime, if you want to help kick in to support the Samurai Archives, please go to SamuraiPodcast.com and be sure to click through our Amazon link to make your Amazon purchases. And of course, if you want to pick up some Japanese history swag, you can go over to our Samurai Archives t-shirt shop, which has t-shirts and posters and various other things, as well as the Samurai Archives bookstore to pick up all your Japanese history needs. And also, please be sure to like us on Facebook where we post various articles in relation to Japan and Japanese history. And also you can get us on Twitter at Samurai Archives. And please send any comments or questions or anything else over to us at SamuraiPodcast at gmail.com. And again, all back episodes are available at SamuraiPodcast.com. So with that, we are out. And catch you next time.